Welcome to season three, Chronicles of UK Salafism and Insider Perspective. This final season shall focus on the decade 2010 to 2019. And before commencing this particular year of episode one, namely 2010, it's important to refer to the advent of the previous decade. And the reason for doing this is to highlight some of the efforts of Salafi communities, the Salafi movement on the whole, to consolidate and unite once again, following the fissures and fractures of the 90s. And I will refer to the minutes of a meeting held on the 23rd of April 2000, where a Salafi national conference was being discussed by various attendees. And I want to highlight some minutes from this meeting in particular and then list the representatives from the cities that attended. And one particular entity was conspicuous by their absence and refusal to attend. And that was um, an indication of what was to follow. So the introduction, point one of these minutes, stated as follows, quote, Brothers from Brixton and Luton decided to organise a Salafi conference. Abu Safiya, that's Abdul Qadir Bakhsh, contacted Sheikh Salim al-Hilali in accordance with the hukum of Sheikh Abul Hassan al-Sulaimani. Sheikh Salim advised us to hold a very large national conference with the participation of all Salafis of the UK. Brothers from the main towns, cities were contacted and invited to a planning meeting in Bristol. Our basis of cooperation is the Quran and Sunnah upon the understanding of the Salaf Saleh. We will also abide by the Hukum of Sheikh Salim and the Hukum of Sheikh Abu Hassan as Sulaimani. The following items were discussed, and it goes on to list, closing quote, the Shayuk that would be attending, the dates of the conference, and the criteria for the venue. Um, that should have a capacity of approximately 2,000 people. And the suggested venue was Luton or Leicester. Now, I will focus on the areas that attended to show the um, wide reach that was set to unite the Salafis once again. And Leicester attended, Luton, Bristol and Cardiff, Bradford and Leeds sent representatives, Brixton, of course, Birmingham, and that was not the Salafi publications uh, cult as they were conspicuous by their absence. Southall, Hounslow, East London, Middlesbrough, Reading, Manchester, Brighton, all attended and pledged donations uh, for the conference to cover some of the expenses of the conference. So that was an attempt in 2000, as I've, as I've highlighted. And it's interesting to see where those entities were in 2010 and what happened to them throughout that particular decade that we're going to cover in this season. I then want to move on to a communication between Abu Khadija, Abdul Wahid Alam, the head of the uh, Salafi Publications cult, and myself on the 6th of August. And this was him providing a joint statement um, that he suggested should go out to show that we were working together. And the email and the wording was penned by him and I merely shared it with colleagues to um, see what their opinion and feedback would be on this. 
So he started the email, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. I pray you are well and in strength of Iman. I heard Sheikh Fawzi delivered a good khutbah followed by Q&A. Then he said, anyway, below is what I believe should be sent on to the Salaf list, the list that I was on. Reference, Brixton Masjid, Ibn Taymiyyah and Salafi Publications, Islamic Centre, Birmingham. And I'll read some of this email because it's very um, pertinent in highlighting aspects of this that resonate today and actually turn the spotlight on the claimants of this particular email. So, quote, Many of the brothers and sisters on this list and elsewhere have probably heard of the changes taking place in the Dawah, both here in England and generally in the West. Well, alhamdulillah, it is very clear and pleasing for many of us that the Dawah is taking a turn in the right direction. For many years now, the scholars and their major students who have been coming to the West have been clarifying the Manhaj and the Sunnah so that the Salafis can drink from the purified spring of the Sunnah. At the same time, it is also clear to see that some individuals have been openly, and others covertly, fighting the true call of Salafiyah. Many have come in the appearance of Salafiyah, seeking to corrupt and deviate the hearts of innocent youth away from the path of the Salafasale and into takfir of the rulers and ruled and of whole societies, innovative political part activities and away from seeking knowledge, to the extent that the ignorant youth have made filthy their souls by throwing slander at the scholars and their major students, by accusing them of urja and being in the pockets of the regimes. Continuing with the letter uh, or the email um, from Abu Khadija, quote, how we have seen with our own eyes the statement of Sheikh Salim al-Hilali come into fruition when he, Hafidullah, said, but in this age, we suffer from young upshoots who have little knowledge and cause trouble to the people of knowledge thinking themselves to be upon something when this is not the case. So they make great accusations in this regard against the wise scholars in this ummah and upon their way, and those upon their way. This only shows their own foolishness and some of those who turned into raisins before having ripened into grapes. Close quote at that point. So this is Abu Khadija quoting a very pertinent statement from Sheikh Salim al-Hilali which resonates today, 2020, and the previous decade. Continuing with his email. So this notice to inform the brothers and sisters that Salafi Publications, Birmingham, and Brixton Masjid Ibn Taymiyyah are upon a single way, a single manhaj. We refer to the same scholars and students of knowledge from Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, Kuwait, and other places based upon evidence and the Sharia principles. And just to list a few of them from those who become signs of Ahlus Sunnah in our times, Sheikh Abdulaziz Ibn Baz, Sheikh Muhammad Nasruddin al-Albani, Sheikh Muhammad Saleh al-Uthaymin, the previous two had passed away, Sheikh Muhammad Saleh al-Uthaymin was still alive at the time, alhamdulillah, Sheikh Saleh al-Fawzan, Sheikh Abdul Muslim al-Abad, Sheikh Rabi Ibn Hadi al-Madkhali, Sheikh Muqbil Ibn Hadi al-Wadihi, Sheikh Ali Hassan al-Halabi, Sheikh Abul Hassan al-Ma'rabi, Note the date of this particular email is the 6th of August um, 2000 and they'd already reneged on the agreement and caused um, doubt in Sheikh Rabi's mind about Sheikh Abul Hassan as he was known at the time, Al-Ma'rabi, Al-Sulaymani, and they've quoted him here. So he's one of the scholars they quote, Sheikh Abul Hassan Al-Ma'rabi, Hafidahullah, 
then they continue. Sheikh Hamad or Abu Khadija continues. Sheikh Hamad al-Uthman, Sheikh Salim al-Hilali, Sheikh Muhammad ibn Hadi, Sheikh Yahya al-Hajuri, Sheikh Usama al-Kusi, Sheikh Ibrahim al-Ruhayli, Sheikh Abdul Malik al-Ramadani, Sheikh Khalid al-Ambari, and we could continue adding to this list and include many others. May Allah preserve all of them. Close quote at this point. I've listed a number of scholars that was penned by Abu Khadija. And in 2020, I think the listener can count on one hand how many of these scholars and students of knowledge they now refer to. So continuing with another aspect of his email. So the opponents of the true Manhaj should realise that there is a united body of Salafis who would defend the purity of this religion to their ability and who are reliant totally upon Allah in their affair. Um, he concludes with his name, uh, Abu Khadija Abdul Wahid Arai at that time. And that was an email 2000. Why are these being referred to again? Because it's important for the listener, the viewer, to understand what took place at the beginning of the previous decade and then to fast forward to this new decade, decade of 2010 and watch the pattern and pathways that continue to widen with particular Salafi communities and entities and those who orchestrated those particular um, fissures, as I've referred to in the previous um, seasons. And the reason I highlight that is because a new call started developing in which when complaining to particular favoured shuyuk, a statement and a mantra came about that individuals were attacking the Salafis. And in making that accusation, the inference was that those who were supposedly attacking were by inference non-Salafi and those who were the Salafis was this one single entity, Salafi publications, the Abu Khadijite cult, that were being targeted by all others and they were having their backs against the wall by this onslaught of non-Salafis, which couldn't have been further from the truth. I, I will refer to one further um, document that I have in my possession here of 2000. Again, this is the 3rd of September now, 2000, and this is in America. And it involves Abu Khadija Arai, as he was called again at that time. And it's none other than a joint declaration by Muhammad al-Jibali and Abu Khadija Arai. And I'll quote some of it. The following declaration is the outcome of a meeting that was held between two, the two above mentioned named brothers in the presence of a number of scholars and students of knowledge on the morning of Sunday the 5th, Jamada al-Akhirah, 1421 as it's written here, 3rd of September 2000. The text was written in Arabic by Sheikh Salim al-Hilali and translated to English by Muhammad al-Jibali. And there are six points here. I will refer to the second point, which is quite poignant, in which it states, there are some enthusiastic young men who extract statements from books and tapes of Salafi du'at without trying to have good thoughts about him who said them or referring them to what is well established of their du'at's manhaj. This is a great error that conflicts with the methodology of the Salaf in Jah and Tahdil. Then there's a, a criticism 
let, uh, leveled towards um, Dr. Jibali, but a polite one, in which it says in point four, quote, any statements that contained harshness are withdrawn and should not be understood as an accusation from one side to the other. This is especially true in regard to brother Dr. Jibali, in regard to the Salafi bookstore and its managers in Birmingham, UK, as well as the Troid webpage in Canada. And this was um, in relation to uh, some of the statements made by Dr. Jibali, who had seen and envisaged what was taking place with these two entities mentioned in this particular clause. The document concludes with the statement, this meeting was held in Detroit, Michigan, USA, during the 14th annual convention of Al-Quran was Sunnah Society in the presence of a number of brothers as well as Sheikh Ali Hassan, Abdul Hamid Al-Athari and Sheikh Salim bin Eid Al-Hilali As-Salafi. So those were key documents that point to what was transpiring at the beginning of the previous decade in the year 2000. And now we will start focusing on 2010 in itself and three distinct avenues or trajectories emerged in 2010. And I will highlight some of them and how they would shape what would continue up until present day 2020. And the first of those um, trajectories was the absence of leadership in national and local um, communities. Um, this became even more um, apparent in communities like Luton, where the leadership, Abdul Qadir, started uh, focusing on other um, aspects of work, still very active, but as a community, connecting with other Salafi communities and leading the, the, the Salafi um, narrative, um, that diminished somewhat. That also occurred with Brixton, my own community. So that was one pathway that was emerging, an absence of leadership that was causing a vacuum somewhat. And in that vacuum, we saw the cult of personality emerging with the cult whose hegemonic ambitions were taking off even more. Um, and that was problematical because they were seeking to be the ones at the helm of the Salafi dawah, the Salafi call and propagation, in the UK and any that did not subscribe or join with this particular entity, this particular cult, were disparaged or marginalised. The third avenue or trajectory that started affecting the Salafi movement across the UK was societal perceptions of Salafism as a non-violent precursor to extremism. And this was supported by liberal elements um, and their think tanks like Quilliam, Sarah Khan, et al. And we also saw non-Muslim neocon think tanks, Policy Exchange, Henry Jackson Society and others also combining with these liberal entities to focus their lens on Salafis as problematic, non-violent extremists. Now, another offshoot that took place, which was of equal concern, was that in the vacuum and the absence of active leadership, progressive leadership, we saw extreme groups starting to exploit this space as well and assuming the Salafi mantle. 
And I speak in particular about Al-Mahajroon and their offshoots that started calling themselves Salafis after Omar Bakri, who was exiled in Lebanon, started um, proclaiming his Salafia as well. And this was due to the popularity of Salafism, Salafia, amongst the youth. So we saw a change from the Al-Mahajroon, previously Hesbet Tahrir, the suit-wearing um, uh, Western attire of their adherents, and they were now dressing very similar, if not the same, as Salafis renowned to dress with the sisters, the, the women wearing the black abaya and the niqab, uh, the men wearing the, the thobes and short thobes, growing the beards long. This is what started occurring amongst extreme elements, takfiri, khariji groups. And this was unfortunate and continues to be the, the case to a certain extent because there still is little or no counter-narrative from within Salafi organisations, communities, the Salafi um, movement itself. Few and, far, um, few and far between are involved in this and little or nothing is being done um, across the communities. The odd leaflet perhaps um, is put out when an incident takes place, but they're very insular and inward looking once again. This has been exacerbated the perception I'm, I'm referring to now, um, societally, by the reputation of harshness, aloofness, and being isolationist amongst the wider Muslim communities and wider society itself. And at this point, I will refer to my own community, uh, Brixton, and the absence of leadership that continues to uh, afflict the community now, and some would argue that that's not the case, but there has been a clear absence of leadership for more than a decade. Following my resignation as chairman um, of the community the previous year, January 2009, there is a role document that was formulated in June, 10th of June 2010, in which the restructuring of the mosque and organisation was done by the individuals. I remained a uh, trustee and still do today. However, I moved from the leadership position as chairman. And what you can see from the um, structure that has been proposed at this point is that the trustees and chairman have an equal um, position above the rest of the hierarchy, the operations manager, the mosque staff, the shura, dawa section, the uh, media comms um, office, the bookshop, uh, the Muslim youth entity, the fundraising wing, accounts and admin. And why is that problematic? Because it effectively muted the chairman. When you look through the rest of this six-page document, you will see uh, descriptions for the board of trustees, the operations manager, the dawa coordinator, the dawa manager, Accounts manager, administration manager, fundraising manager, community manager, manager, media and communications manager. There is absolutely no role or description for the chairman. Um, and so from having that leadership role and position that I carried for 15 years up until 2009, that was emphatically minimised by the subsequent administration um, effectively muting the chairman um, and any subsequent chairman. And one only has to look at Brixton today and to 
explore and see who is that leadership figure. Yes, they have a chairman of the administration, but where is that leadership role? Where is that leadership jurisdiction? Where is that leadership autonomy? And even when referring to minutes, moving to the uh, minutes of some of the Shura meetings, there's a lack of direction and community cohesion, as well as an absence of capacity building. And I'm being critical in this instance, and I was a trustee at a particular time, so I suppose some criticism can be levelled at all of us in this regard, um, but it speaks to the point that I want to highlight. So, for example, when we look at the media section of the minutes from the 13th of March 2010, we have a very serious incident that's being discussed here under media. And I'll read what it is. The Quote, the media and communication roles will be interlinked. A stabbing occurred outside the masjid on Wednesday. A Somali boy who was stabbed ran into the masjid and collapsed in the sister's side. Forensics were in the sister's side until 4pm on Thursday. South London Press tried to contact the masjid, but as they were unsuccessful, they did not try again. And then the rest of the, that particular paragraph speaks about who can represent the mosque to speak to the media. That's a surprising question when you consider the events of the previous decade and 2001 and 2005 and the terrorist attacks that took place and everything and the spotlight that came on the community at that particular time. But what it highlights is a lack of focus. There was no further discussion on this very serious incident that took place. A young Muslim boy being stabbed, running into the, the masjid, the women's side of the masjid, and collapsing. Nowhere in the rest of the minutes that I'm looking at here is there a discussion on what should be done, how can it be addressed, what's happened with this individual, what measures could be put in place, absolutely nothing. And I want to refer back to another aspect to show that that lack of direction and sticking or remaining in a comfort zone, which has almost become counterproductive. And I will explain what I mean by that. Under the section of propagation, dawa, discussions are taking place and being highlighted about, highlighted about contacts being made with some of the scholars. And a scholar, a sheikh, is prepared to do an abridged set of lessons on Thalata Usul, Usul Thalata. And you'll see in the subsequent minutes that I'm going to refer to that that conversation continues. And then when you get to the end of the year and look at the November minutes, the conversation is still around uh, Usul Thalata. And this is a problem. Herein is a problem and a challenge that many Salafi communities across the UK and, dare say, the West, America as well, have faced for a number of years. These books on Akida, ideology, theology, are very, very important. But without providing a context for the student or the participants to know how to enact that in their daily lives, in their local communities, in wider society, the effects and the fruits of having the correct ideology. It only becomes academic. And this is what we have witnessed across many communities when you're looking at urban communities with the youth being involved in crime, some being killed, some serving second, third prison sentences for long, long periods of time, seeing no progress, um, 
spiritually among some of the congregation because of some of the acts and social um, problems and ills that are taking place. The question comes that once teaching this without a context and without embedding it within um, socio-economic, socio-cultural contexts, it is, again, I repeat, just academic. And this has been a problem that we see many Salafi communities always reverting to. Going back to teaching Aqidah, which is very important, and then when others come to teach about social dynamics, social requirements, they're frowned upon. They're called Ikwani. This is the way of the Muslim Brotherhood. Just sit and teach Aqidah, and that's it. Also encouraging um, uh, individuals not to progress societally. To some extent, even uh, requesting that the children remain at home for homeschooling when the parents are ill-equipped to homeschool the children. But they're praised for saying at least they're not attending a non-Muslim school. These are the counterproductive um, effects, not of teaching Aqidah, but avoiding social dynamics, social cohesion lessons, um, to make the community engage, participate, and become an integral part of wider society. So those were the minutes of the 13th of March. I'll quickly move on to the ones of the 1st of May. And again, as I said, under Dawa, we're seeing discussions on Usulu Thalatha, telelinks running fortnightly. Yet you have a student of knowledge who's graduated from Medina who can teach uh, Usulu Thalatha. So the question then comes, why do they need uh, to, to link with scholars abroad in doing something as rudimentary as this particular class? When you look at other communities, you'll see progression. You'll see the communities expanding, businesses growing from them, more qualified um, members uh, academically, professionally, um, socially. And this is what needs to be addressed um, even today in 2020. There's been some progress, but small progress at that. Moving on to some of the events that took place in 2010. And the 1st of January, we saw a suicide car bomb at a volleyball tournament in Pakistan, killing 105 people and injuring 100. And then uh, a week or so later, 12th of January, we see an earthquake in Haiti, killing approximately 160,000 individuals. On the 26th of January, the WHO rejected claims that it had overstated the severity of the swine flu pandemic the previous year under pressure from vaccine companies. And this is very interesting that this was an, uh, an accusation that they faced uh, 10 years ago, looking at what we are facing um, in 2020. A personal event of mine and an achievement was on the 7th of January, I visited uh, the University of Exeter um, and sat for my viva and was successful in this. And later that evening, the two professors who conducted the, the viva um, invited me for dinner um, and I was informed that there was a publishing deal ready on the table for me to sign, um, which would convert my PhD into a book um, uh, published by Palgrave Macmillan the following year. On the 17th of January, 
I formally accepted the part-time lecture position at the University of St Andrews in Scotland, where I'd be teaching master's degree students in terrorism studies. And I also formalised my research fellow position in the European Re uh, Muslim Research Centre in the University of Exeter, and collaborated a few months later in the publication for Aarhus University in Denmark, um, entitled Muslim Communities Perspectives on Radicalization in Leicester. That came out in August 2010. Continuing, on the 17th of March, I emailed some of my colleagues at Street to highlight that I'd been approached by Quinton Wojtorovic, the academic that I previously mentioned, who um, developed that typology where Salafia was categorized into three um, Salafi quietists or purists. Salafi politicos and Salafi jihadis, in which I discussed and debated with him that this was an incorrect typology. Um, I, I won't uh, go over that again because I discussed it in the previous season. However, he had been appointed first secretary of the US Embassy and he'd contacted me as an independent expert because there was a case that was emerging in Ireland where um, a young lady, convert, had flown over from America and got involved in an individual who had just been arrested for um, accusations of terrorism um, in that he was planning to murder Lars Vilks, the um, cartoonist who drew depictions of Prophet Muhammad وسلم, peace and blessings be upon him. And this individual that I was asked to contact independently because they didn't know how to deal with the situation and I ensured that there would be no um, other involvement except myself directly with this individual um, was Jamie Pauline Ramirez, Sister Sumeya, who was to become known as Jihad Jamie in the case of Jihad Jane. Now, I contacted her, introduced myself, um, initially, she was suspicious, but then in our question and answers and discussion, she realised that I was an independent entity um, and we maintained contact and built trust. And then I started advising her um, regarding Dean aspects because some of the things she was unsure about were very um, disconcerting and I wanted to advise her about context and things like this. She eventually re returned to the US and was um, incarcerated and underwent trial in which her lawyer, at her request, asked me to become an expert witness, um, defence witness in her case. I flew out, sat with her while she was um, in prison, um, took details and notes and prepared a report, an expert report that highlighted that she was not extreme, that she was vulnerable, she was a new convert and it was only vulnerability and romanticism that made her travel unsuspectedly to this individual she was going to marry and her diary and all of the evidence showed that she regretted um, that upon landing with her son. However, such is the US um, legal system that they said that she sh should be found guilty um, and they subsequently passed sentence on her. However, what was highlighted during the trial and I gave evidence via Skype was that the expert witness evidence that, and report that I had provided and the psychological report that had been provided um, reduced her sentence somewhat. The judge highlighted this. She was looking at 35 years and she subsequently got eight. Um, after her release, she and I continued to stay in contact. She remained um, in touch with me right up until very recently when her conditions, her bell conditions, um, were finally... Um, uh, fulfilled. 
On the 11th of May, 2010, another national event, David Cameron became the Prime Minister of a coalition government between his Conservative Party, the Conservative Party and the Liberal Democrats. And unfortunately, but unsurprisingly, under this government, the demise in relations between them and the Muslim populace, populace would accelerate. In July 2010, Demos released a report entitled From Suspects to Citizens, Preventing Violent Extremism in a Big Society. And I'm referring to this now um, on the tale of highlighting David Cameron becoming um, Prime Minister because he had this concept of big society, muscular liberalism, which later was aborted. And the report provided the following recommendations, and I, I will read them in summary. The first one was, quote, prevention work, prevention work sorry, should be limited to people believed to have the intention to commit or directly facilitate violence or those targeted by recruiters. It went on to say that it should be police-led with support from local authorities and specialist organisations like the Active Change Foundation in Walthamstow, ACF. The second recommendation was to, quote, dismantle the Preventing Violent Extremism programme. Programmes like Preventing Violent Extremism have blurred the boundaries between social cohesion and counter-terrorism, which often alienated the very people it was trying to bring outside, close quote, bring onside, sorry, close quote. This confirms what had been highlighted previously by myself and other academic colleagues in that the authorities needed to maintain the community-focused strategies that involved grassroots, bottom-up partnerships, as opposed to the community-targeted, top-down, coercive strategies that were beginning to be redeployed by government and security services. The third recommendation that came from this Demos report was, quote, fight extreme and radical views that are non-violent through openness and argument rather than bans or legislation. And the final point that it gave was um, point four, quote, a big society of active, powerful citizens will be an effective way to indirectly improve cohesion and address the root causes, the root causes of violent extremism, close quote. The government had previously um, taken uh, Demos reports very, very seriously, as we saw with the Bringing It Home Together um, reports of the early noughties. However, this one seemed to or appeared to have fallen on deaf ears because nothing appeared to be implemented from these recommendations. On the 8th of June, a letter was written to the Director General of the Office for Security and Counterterrorism in the Home Office uh, who presided over the PREVENT strategy. And that was from the Global Survivors Network, whose founder was Carrie Lamack. Um, her mother was a victim of the Twin Tower attacks of 9-11 and she became active in combating extremism um, through this organisation. And I want to read the letter to Charles Farr. Um, it, was it was concerning my organisation, Street, um, for the reasons of highlighting once again that with Salafi participation in these wider societal contexts and spaces, the success and efficacy of our belief system, 
of our effectiveness in combating extremism became much clearer to many and was supported by many from different stratas of society. And so I will start with the letter. Dear Mr. Farr, in 2007, I was lucky enough to meet Abdullah Baker at, the, at that time, the chairman of Brixton Mosque. I was in London as part of my efforts as the co-founder of Families of September 11th, an organisation I created after my mother's murder on September 11th, 2001. My goal was to help victims of terrorism speak out in order to provide a counter-narrative to that of the extremists. And I thought it made sense to start closest to home with victims of the terrible attacks of July 7, 2005. When I was in introduced to Mr. Baker, I was not sure what to expect. I knew he had contact with two alleged terrorists, Zacharias Massawi, the so-called 20th hijacker, and Richard Reed, the infamous shoe bomber. It immediately became clear that while Mr. Baker and I come from different countries, he's from the UK, I'm from the US, and different religions, Islam versus Judaism, and different looks, um, me being a tall black British man, as she says here, and herself being a short white American woman. We had one thing in common. We wanted to use our unique positions to ensure that what had happened in the past never happens again. In 2009, we were invited to participate in an innovative programme in Lambeth Council in South London. Alongside John Faldin, a man who lost his partner in the 7-7 attacks, we spoke at five schools across the council, spreading our message of peace and tolerance and demonstrating to children that while we are different, we often have the same goals and dreams. At schools with older children, we also provided stories detailing the harsh realities of terrorism, highlighting that the effects are most often felt by people who are neighbours and residents of the same communities as the attackers. In the three years I've known Mr Baker and had the privilege of working with him and his incredible team at Street, I have continued to be impressed with his, with his capacity to reach those who absolutely need it, to keep the focus of his efforts on where they need to be and on his ability to deliver real counter-terrorism programmes when so many others can only talk about them. It is an honour to work with him and I hope that Global Survivors Network, the newly formed organisation of terrorism victims, victims around the globe, who are adding their voices to those condemning terrorism, will be able to continue doing so in the near future. If you ever require more information about my experiences with Mr Baker or the street programme, I am more than happy to provide them. This extraordinary programme deserves acknowledgement for providing real results and making huge impacts in the lives of those most at risk. Sincerely, Carrie Lamac, daughter of Judy Laracock. Again, this is being read to highlight the effectiveness of Salafis when participating and engaging more widely because the Salafi movement due to its ideology, due to the robustness of its approach to combating extremism and clarifying what orthodox Sunni Islam is, is why we should be in that space. Now, drawing to a conclusion, I will refer to some of the other events, events that took place in that year. 
February 2010 saw me attend a National Security American Muslim and US Government Relations Conference in Washington, D.C. as a keynote speaker. In September, I attended what was my second Capita Conference on Preventing Violent Extremism in London. Um, as mentioned in the previous season, I attended my first one uh, in 2009. International events that occurred. 13th of October, a mining accident in which 33 miners were trapped underground for 69 days came to an end. All were re rescued, unharmed. On the 11th of December, the Stockholm bombings occurred and the culprit there was Taymor Abdul Wahab Abdali, who previously resided in Luton. And this brought the Luton Salafi community under the spotlight. Abdul Qadir had to conduct a series of interviews about this individual and how he had confronted him about his extremist beliefs and made him un feel unwelcome in attending their Masjid al-Ghurabah and quarter uh, Islam centre um, in Luton, which was run by Abdul Qadir and the Salafi community. Um, I offered what support I could by contacting him and even... Uh, being involved in one or two interviews to support the Luton community. Unlike, as I mentioned previously, post 9-11, where we did not receive any support from our Salafi co-religionists whatsoever. Uh, many shied away and stood back, um, unlike the proactive steps that I took on this occasion and my community took to support um, the Luton Salafi community. Concluding this particular episode, on the 18th of December, we saw the Arab Spring erupt with a series of anti-government protests and uprisings in Tunisia after a street vendor, Tariq El Tayyib Mohammed Bouazizi, set himself on fire out of frustration of his merchandise being confiscated. He subsequently died. I gave a khutbah urging caution from Salafi communities in particular to avoid adopting the usual stance that this individual, the grassroots of, of Tunisia, they were wrong for this uprising um, because we know that the religion authentically states not to revolt against the rulers. And I was not contradicting this religious position. However, I was appealing to the Salafi community to have empathy and understand the frustrations of these lay people at the subjugation and harsh treatment that they'd continued to endure for decades from the political elite and leadership of some of these countries. This was duly acknowledged by the congregation um, in their response uh, subsequent to the khutbah. And we would see that the Arab Spring would change the face of the Muslim world. Salafi Muslim groups started emerging on the political scene in some of these countries that were facing these seismic changes. And we also, also saw something interesting in that the Takfiri extreme groups like Al-Qaeda would be sidelined momentarily and silenced as mere observers at what was taking place. Because those who were rising up, those who were protesting, had no interest 
in the radicalization and violent rhetoric of these extremist groups at all. However, we saw another liberal agenda that was seeping into the societies from outside, support clandestine and otherwise from Western democratic states that were pushing and supporting these um, protesters at various levels.